Well, like I said, we have come quite a ways in our Bible study tonight. We're going through 2 Kings. And with this study, we've nearly covered the entire gamut of Israel's history in the Old Testament. I mean, we started way back in Genesis. We've seen the calling and choosing of Israel as a holy nation, formal beginning of that nation in the Exodus, the foundation of that nation in the Torah, the early history of that nation in the Judges. That's already several hundred years. More recently, though, we've been getting into 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, where we see the time of the kings over Israel. That's several hundred more years. We saw Israel's first king, Saul, was a failed experiment. He was not a man after God's own heart. Kingdom was torn from him. But the one after him, David, would be different. The opposite, though not sinless, though with his own fall. Uh, truly, though, a man after God's own heart. A man of true faith. And that, that's all that God is looking for. That's what magnifies him. And so God promised to make David's name great, establish his throne forever. David's greatness passed on to his son Solomon, who initially was great. He led Israel in a golden age. Solomon put his wisdom on display, leading Israel to prosperity. But Solomon's folly became known as well. In later years, he turned from the exclusive worship of Israel. And that just that right there sowed the seeds for all that was to come. The nation was torn from him, likewise in judgment. And after Solomon, the kingdom divided. I mean, they just had three kings in a united kingdom. And afterwards, it was a divided kingdom until they were both wiped out. And that's first, second kings. You have the kingdom of Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And from then on, you have two competing sets of kings ruling over God's one people. At least they're supposed to be one people. But now they're a divided people. And this would not go well. Israel in the north, they did not know a single godly, God-fearing king to lead them in, in true righteousness. Not a single one. And Judah in the fa- south only fared a little bit better. And so God was going to remove this people. They, they had removed themselves far from the worship of God, so he was going to remove them far from him and, and his land. Last week we were into First Kings. We saw just the, the continued downward trajectory of Israel and Judah. Things not going well. They're going down a path of idolatry and immorality. And that only continues in 2 Kings. And by the end of this book of the Old Testament, so far the Old Testament has largely been arranged chronologically. By the end of this, Israel is no more and Judah is no more. These two kingdoms are destroyed. God himself will kick them out of the land and scatter them abroad as a consequence of their sin. The land will be left desolate. The temple will be destroyed. Their kings deposed. Second Kings is the inglorious ending of Israel. Not quite the end though. Israel is still a people, but now a people without a land, without national sovereignty. There will be a dispersed, scattered, confused people. But God would not entirely put out their candle, nor end the line of David. And you see that the small ray of hope that emerges from Second Kings, though judged, Israel can still rest assured that one day God will make good on his promises. That includes the promises to them and through them. Historically speaking, you get to the end of Second Kings, it's nearly where the history of the Old Testament leaves off, Israel in exile. After this, we learn a little bit more. They do eventually come back from exile and try and rebuild, but never again do they regain true national sovereignty. This is kind of a side note. It's interesting to think about that 
Israel has never known true national sovereignty until only recently, 1948. And they were regathered and now are a sovereign nation once again. Probably not a coincidence in God's timetable of things, but save that for another day. For now, though, our goal is to study 2 Kings as we aim to get to know the Old Testament, helping you read the Bible for all of its worth, giving you special introductions to each book of the Bible one at a time. 2 Kings has a unique role of, of showing and explaining the complete downfall of Israel and Judah. The historical, theological, and practical lessons here are numerous. History books are full of accounts of how great nations fell, but they don't tell that history from God's perspective. In the Bible, that's what you're getting. This is God's own perspective on the fall of his own nation. He made them and raised them up. Now he is tearing them down and kicking them out, and he's going to tell them and, and us why. He's telling us for a purpose, if there ever was a cautionary tale, this is it. At 2 Kings, you get the brunt of it, that we would not make these same mistakes. So let's proceed and, and finish uh, 2 Kings up tonight. We did 1 Kings last time. For 2 Kings, originally just one book. So we don't really need to recover a lot of the basic background, the title, the author, the audience, the date. It's all the same as 1 Kings. They're written together. Just for a review, though, let me bring you even more up to speed on the setting because you kind of have to read 1 Kings first. So if you perhaps weren't here last week, you might not not be up to speed. But you start off from 1 Kings. The first half of 1 Kings is all about Solomon and his rise. You see the golden years. This is a true golden age for Israel. All the other surrounding nations were at a weak point. Israel was the dominant power for Solomon's reign. They're seeking the Lord. He's judging the people wisely and justly. Then we see his compromise. His heart was led astray to worship foreign gods as he multiplied many wives. And so God tore the kingdom away from him, would only leave them one uh, tribe, Judah, for the the throne of David to rule over. And the second half of 1 Kings details this. Right after Solomon, the kingdom is divided. Rehoboam, his son, rules Judah in the south. Jeroboam rules the 10 northern tribes in Israel, and they'll be divided thereafter. But it's really important you remember a key piece of background from last time surrounding Jeroboam is the first king of this new nation, northern Israel, or or just the northern kingdom. And as the first king, what's his first order of business, if you recall? It is to create an alternative competing religious system so that his people don't have to go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. They're now cut off from Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. And he didn't want the king of Judah to steal the hearts of his people away from him because they've got to go worship at the temple three times a year. So Jeroboam made two golden calves, not one, two. He set them up at the far north and the far south of his kingdom. He told Israel, hey, this is your God who delivered you from Egypt. Go worship him, bow down before the golden calf, create a new priesthood, new feast, new sacrificial system, all just to maintain control over his people. This was bad. And this obviously incurred the wrath of God. This was state-endorsed idolatry. And so God himself vowed to wipe out the house of Jeroboam. 
and that later would happen. From here on out, though, in First and Second Kings, the name Jeroboam keeps coming up. He becomes what we call a king of comparison. All the remaining kings of Israel in the north are compared to him. Like I said last week, not in a good way. It's usually to show like how bad they measured up on the, on the evil king scale. Either as bad as Jeroboam and a few were even worse. And that's meant to tell you something like worse than Jeroboam. How much worse could you get? Well, the next notable king we saw was Ahab. And he, he was worse. He outright abandoned the worship of Yahweh. They, they stopped pretending that they worshipped Yahweh. This is now state-endorsed Baal worship. Very few true worshipers were left. It was a dark time. But God did not leave himself without a witness. He raised up the great prophet Elijah to testify the truth to the king, call him to repent. King never listened, and God's wrath likewise fell on him. God pronounced he would similarly wipe out the lineage of Ahab. We have not yet seen that come to pass. It will in Second Kings. But that's where we left off with the death of Ahab in battle. His son becomes king and we'll see where, where things keep going from there. That's a little bit of the background here. Now before we jump in again with these historical books, I think it's good to do that synopsis just so you get a feel of what the book is about and how it, how it moves and some of the highlights but I've been throwing in the purpose first. I used to save that for the end, but I, I like to cover the purpose first because there's just so much to, to grapple with in the text. It's good to, to be clued into the purpose of these books beforehand. So last time we spent a good chunk of time talking about the purpose of First and Second Kings. Why was this book written? It's written as one book. They share a purpose. We can, we can repeat that. First and Kings was written after judgment fell. The nation has been wiped out. It's after captivity in Babylon. In fact, it's probably written in Babylon. And it's written to explain how God could let this happen to his chosen people. And the answer is he did not let it happen. He made it happen on purpose. This was a judgment from God himself. Like he told them, he warned them he would do this. If they forsook him and violated his covenant, they served other gods. That's what they did. And so this is what happens. Throughout First Second Kings, we witness king after king abandon God, forsake him. Israel's people did the same. Generation after generation was characterized by idolatry, immorality, evil. They forsook God. They violated their covenant with him. And God's long suffering with Israel and Judah is profound. I mean, we just let them do this for hundreds of years. And he sent them many prophets. If only they just listened to the voice of the prophets, he would forgive them and restore them. But they never did. So God's own holy justice demanded an end to their ways. And God brought about all the curses he said he was going to upon them and deposed them. And so First and Second Kings was written after the fact, a postmortem, to convict all Israel and her kings of their wicked idolatry, showing they brought this present distress upon themselves as they're sitting on the ash heap in Babylon. Like, this is why this happened. You, you did this to yourselves by abandoning your God. That, that should tell them another lesson, though. Like, if that's the case, what then do you think is the way out of this present distress? Because God had not wiped them out entirely, and it's not too late. Now, even in the exile, 
What do they have to do? Repent. Turn away from their foreign gods. Return to seeking the one true God. His mercy might be found again. Who knows? Maybe he'll let them go back. And 70 years later, that is what would happen through the righteous prayers of men like Daniel, for example. And accordingly, 1 Kings is not entirely hopeless. I'm reminded many times that even though the people are faithless, God is faithful. He will only ever be faithful to his word and his promises and that covenant. He will one day bring to pass all he has spoken concerning his people. And these promises now include that for a special son of David, a special king who will lead the people in everlasting righteousness. God has not forgotten that word. He will bring it to pass. That's seen in the closing words of Second Kings, which show us that even in their complete desolation, a descendant of David is still alive and well. And that promised king will still come. That now is Israel's only hope. It always was their only hope, only now like they really know that that's their only hope for God to keep his word. All right, well, let's get into a little bit of the structure, outline, a synopsis of Second Kings now. I gave you a very simple four-part outline for First and Second Kings. We covered half of it. We're going to finish it up. It's as simple as can be. You know, First Kings, chapters 1 through 11, is the golden age of Israel. And 1 Kings 12 through 22 is the decline of Israel and Judah. Now we're into 2 Kings. And we have thirdly that the end of Israel, 2 Kings 1 through 17. And then, not creatively, it just is what it is. It's the end of Judah. 2 Kings 18 through 25. So we find now the end of Israel through the first 17 chapters and then the end of Judah and what is left thereafter. And so I want to carry on with the synopsis of these two points, really just 2 Kings, the end of Israel, the end of Judah. So let's do that. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings, chapter 1, chapter 2. We'll get there shortly. We really only have time to skim and hit some highlights, but I think just doing that will give you a big sense of where this book is going, what this book is about. Starting with 2 Kings 1 and 2. So the opening chapters, it's an arbitrary distinction. There was no original chapter division here. First Kings just carried right on into Second Kings. It was just one book. But for our purposes, we're, we're keeping them split up. Now that's fine. So Second Kings begins with King Ahaziah falling ill, king of Israel. And he seeks help from God to be healed. But in his mind, Yahweh doesn't even come to mind. He's like, he seeks after Baal, Zebub, God of Ekron, to find help. God sends Elijah to go rebuke him and says like, look, you seriously have forgotten that there's a God in Israel that you would go call on another God to heal you? That repeated phrase, like, is there no God in Israel? I mean, the king of Israel, he's seeking help from other gods as if there is no king in it or God in Israel. It just shows how low Israel already was. And God told that king he would go down to the grave. And that's what happened. He was not healed. He went down to the grave. That's, I think that, that, that emphasis is on purpose. Because in chapter 1, the wicked, faithless, faithless king goes down. Chapter 2, what happens? The faithful, righteous prophet Elijah goes up. He's taken to heaven directly. That's 2 Kings 2. 
It's very significant. It shows God's own verdict on Israel at the time. The kings are judged. They are wicked and they always go down. They go to the grave. They go to judgment. But here is the great prophet and so great by God's grace, yet so faithful that God takes him directly up. He goes past death and straight to heaven. uh, God regards men of faith and also shows God's regard for the prophets. These were the true representatives of God at the time. These kings really should have listened to the prophets, especially one like Israel or or one like Elijah, rather. You study your New Testament, you realize Elijah and Moses, the the two greatest Old Testament prophetic figures. And uh, first, second Kings is where they come from. We see the ministry of Elijah and then Elisha. What's really significant here, we won't read this, but as you read chapter 2, it's not an accident that it tells you the path Elijah takes. He knows he's going to be taken up by the Lord. Somehow, God had obviously revealed it to him. He takes a very specific path to leave Israel. He goes down to Bethel, goes to Jericho. Then he crosses the Jordan. By, By the way, he parts the Jordan and crosses it, and then God takes him. Seems kind of odd, like why would he do this? Well, It's not hard to figure it out. This is the exact reverse path Israel took in the conquest. They're on the eastern of the Jordan. God parted the Jordan. They crossed in dry land. They went to Jericho, later to Bethel, and thereafter. He's he's going the exact opposite path. This is signifying God's witness through the prophet that he's leaving the land. His his witness is leaving the land. This is a rebuke and an act of judgment on the people that God is removing his faithful prophet from them. But thankfully, not for good, because Elisha takes over right away. He takes Elijah's place. He parts the Jordan himself, showing he had received the power uh, of of God's uh, chosen prophet, and he re-enters the land. God will, will raise up another witness that his name might not be forgotten in Israel. The day will come when God's glory truly departs from the land. You find that really shown in Ezekiel which talks about later times. Uh, But that time is not yet. Elisha goes on to repeat many miracles of Elijah, showing that now he represents God. He has the authority of God. He's God's spokesman. You had better listen to him. And just for the fun of it, we'll read my favorite one of Elisha's signs or shows of of power, authenticating him as as God's prophet. It's at the end of chapter 2. Is such a random, seemingly random little episode, but it's there for a purpose. Chapter 2, verse 23, it's talking about Elisha. It says, then he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. Get the picture he had of receding hairline. He's bald. Verse 24, it says, when he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. It's like, what? (laughs) But this is there for a purpose showing he just speaks a curse and they are cursed. They are judged. This is God vindicating his prophet and also saying, you better regard the prophet. You better honor the man of the Lord. You better show reverence. He's not God, but he's representing God to you. And you better render honor to him who it is due. 
Chapters 3 through 7 go on and, and continue that. He, he, Elisha now works many wonders in the same vein as Elijah. A key theme emerges of, of helping the, the weak, the lowly, the meek, the helpless, especially women. Elijah and Elisha both had a really notable ministry to women, even foreign women, and proved to have more faith and righteousness and, and justice than even the king's. This just shows God's heart for the lowly, the downcast, the humble, the helpless, from the helpless widow of chapter 4 to the, the leprous foreigner in chapter 5. In fact, at chapter 5 here, you have the, the Naaman-Gehazi episode, and it's quite the contrast because Naaman, he's a king of the, or rather he's a captain of the Aramean army. These are arch rivals. That's basically Syria, arch rivals of Israel. He's a captain of their army. He gets leprosy, but he hears of Elisha, this prophet. So he goes to him and Elisha tells him, just like, go wash in the Jordan seven times, you'll be healed. He thinks it's ridiculous, but you know what? He takes him at his word, so he goes and he's healed. And he returns and he says, chapter 5, verse 15, he says, when he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. He says, so please take a present from your servant now. It goes on, verse 17 and following, he, he vows he will not offer burnt offering to any other God, but Yahweh alone. This is a foreigner becoming a, a true worshiper. Naaman became a, a Yahweh exclusive worshiper. Like That should have been Israel, but, but it wasn't. This is a foreigner, but he is brought to, to faith. This is in contrast with Gehazi, who was a servant of Elisha and an Israelite. But he's overcome in greed because he sees the huge reward Naaman offered Elisha, which he turned down. So he goes and and tries to get it for himself. And and in judgment, the leprosy of Naaman clings to Gehazi. You see this total reversal. is showing God has regard for faith and true faith wherever it might be found. It's not enough to be a physical descendant of Abraham. You need to be a spiritual descendant of Abraham and have the faith of Abraham. And that's what God regards. Whether you're an Israelite or an Aramean, if you have beholden with true faith, he, he honors that and rewards that. And that was Gehazi not, or rather that was Naaman, not Gehazi. And speaking of faith, these chapters here, three through seven, really emphasize the unseen. That's like a little, tiny little motif, the, the unseen. God expects his people to believe him Even though they haven't seen him, he expects them to take him at his word and obey, even though they they don't see everything. He calls them to faith. Israel, of course, completely failed at this. And so we have an an episode where the Arameans come to try and invade. They want to kill Elisha, actually, and they surround him. His servant is, is scared to death. But then Elisha, what, opens his eyes to see that the chariots of, of God's army around them to fight for them. And then Elisha goes on to strike the Aramean army with blindness. Now they cannot see. And he turns them back. Later in chapter 6, you have Samaria besieged, and they're going to starve to death. Elisha, though, predicts God will deliver them, so much so that they'll have a super abundance of food the next day. There's a huge famine. He says the next day you'll have more food than you know what to do with. And the servants of the king refuse to believe it because to them, seeing is believing. 
And Elisha tells him, oh, it's going to happen. You'll, you'll see it, but you won't eat of it. And indeed, those, the, the city was delivered. The servants saw God's deliverance, but they perished. Again, the point is just faith. God is looking for faith. He rewards faith. All of his words come true. Every, you, you read First Second Kings, everything said by a prophet, any true prophet, it always comes true. Everything said here in the near term, in the long term, none of them fall. Every word comes to pass. And Israel is meant to learn the lesson like, what's it going to take to just take God at his word? That applies to you and me as we'll think about later. Just what will it take for you to simply take God at his word? Do you, must you see to believe? You probably won't get the privilege of seeing to believe, but God has put pleasing him behind the wall of faith. It's that without faith, it's impossible to please him. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Will you have faith? Still, God just wanted a people that would cling to him and heed his word. And, uh, well, suffice it to say, he was not going to find that in Israel. You get into chapters 8 through 12. You see just a continued succession of kings and dynasties. You find God sets up kings and then he, he knocks them down. He sets up dynasties and then he wipes them out. Dynasties come and go. All of them come and go except one. David's dynasty never goes. Chapter 8, verse 19. It says, however, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he had promised him to give a lamp to him through his sons always. You find little notes like that scattered all throughout reminding us God is keeping his word. He has a plan. He will do something with and through the sons of David. God's sovereign over all these kings, even the unfaithful ones. Now, speaking of removing dynasties, here's where God finally wipes out the dynasty of Ahab. That state-endorsed Baal worship has gone on long enough. God uses Jehu to eliminate all of Ahab's descendants, as well as Jezebel. Jehu eradicates Baal worship from northern Israel. Don't get the impression he was a good king. Jehu was still wicked and led them in idolatry. But he did eliminate Baal worship, so I guess that's a good thing. But the same happened in the south. Athaliah was a wicked queen who came to power in Judah, and she put to death every single royal descendant. She single-handedly almost completely snuffed out the line of David. There's just one last remaining descendant, a baby, a child, who was taken, kind of like Moses, and and saved and tucked away and hidden, the last remaining descendant of of David. But you only need one to repopulate, and God's promise was still alive. You just needed one. And indeed, that child grew a little bit, and through the priest Jehoiada, they overthrew Athaliah the queen, and that, that child Joash became king, and he led the south in reform. And in Judah, around the same time, Baal worship was also eradicated from Judah. You finally get a little bit of a good king in this young king, Joash. He goes on to repair the temple. It was like dilapidated, fallen into disrepair. Other kings didn't really care for it. But we find in chapter 12, verse 2, the verdict, you know, finally there's a king who resembles David, a man after God's heart. All right, well, you get into chapters 13 through 16. We're going, you know, bigger leaps here. It's all we really got time for. But 
chapters 13 through 16, time speeds up as we're getting close to the end of Israel. You see more transitions, more treachery, more bloodshed, more wicked kings of Israel reign. Eventually you get to Jeroboam the second. I mean, what does that tell you when you choose that as your namesake? Like, I want to be Jeroboam the second. And as you can imagine, it was pretty bad. And it's going to catch up for them. God gives them continued grace and keeps sending them prophet after prophet, calling them to repent and return. But the people never listen. The kings never listen. God shows them even little acts of mercy and temporarily delivering them, but they never really turn back to God. Baal worship has already returned. Things get pretty bad in the south as well. Judah, at the same time, sinks pretty low. Chapter 16, go there. Verse 3, you have King Ahaz, one of the worst kings of the south. How far does he go? Talks about his wickedness, and then it says, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even made his sons pass through the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. That's a reference to child sacrifice to pagan gods. It's a, a, a traditional worship of, for example, the god Molech. They would build a, a very tall statue of, of a man picturing Molech and his arms were outstretched downward like that. And they would build a fire under the arms and place children at the top of the arms, and they would topple down into the fire as a sacrifice to Molech. And that's what the king of Judah is doing. So that, that again, pretty bad, telling you how far into depravity Israel and Judah had sunk. Uh, this is bad. You get the feeling the end is near. The end, the end better be near. This is pretty wicked. And it is. Assyria is introduced now. Wicked Ahaz in the south, he actually recruited the Assyrians. He paid them to come and, you know, get Israel off his back. And, and they did so. They actually went too far. They captured Damascus and they, they were going to keep going. Chapter 17, from then on, northern Israel has been made a vassal state of Assyria. They, they stopped paying tribute later. They thought they could, you know, get out from under Assyria's thumb, but it did not work. The Assyrians then fully invaded. Chapter 17, verse 6, as an example, it says in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria. And it goes on from there. All At this point, all of northern Israel is conquered and exiled. The people are taken captive to Assyrian lands. And in return, they took their own people or some other foreigners and they transplanted them into the land of Israel. It's a very common tactic, at least by the Assyrians. It's a way of eliminating uprisings in conquered lands. You just take all the people who feel patriotic and you transplant them somewhere else and you bring a bunch of other people, put them in that land, and you're not going to have any uprisings. They don't really care about the land as much. This is why later in Israel's history, you have the, the Samaritans come from descendants of these hybrid Jew-Gentiles that remain in the land. And a, a pagan influence, a Gentile influence remains from here on out. We'll see that in later books. But we find here this chapter, chapter 17, this is it. This is the end of northern Israel. The ten northern tribes. Captured, scattered, uh, lost. This marks the end of northern Israel. 
the rest of this chapter is extremely important. This is the chapter to highlight because this chapter, the author himself gives you the key to unlocking the interpretation of the exile. Why the exile? How could God let this happen? I can't stress enough how big of a deal this was to Israel and their national identity as God's people to be exiled like this. How and why? Chapter 17 explains, so significant, we'll save this like we typically do for a little special focus. Well, hopefully we'll have time. We'll come back to chapter 17 at the end and and see a little bit more why this happened. Leave that there though. That's the end of section number three, the end of Israel. Let's finish with the fourth section in first and Kings, the end of Judah, because Judah is not far behind. Now give them another 120, 130 years, and they're going to end up pretty much the same place. And that's what happens in chapters 18 through 25. You get to 18 through 20, chapters 18 through 20. And thankfully though, there's a bright spot. It's not all bad. Now, Judah was on the same trajectory, but they had a righteous king, Hezekiah, and he turned things around. After the depth of depravity of Israel's kings leading to their deportation, we see, at least for a moment, the complete opposite in Hezekiah. And it slows down to focus on Hezekiah, showing, obviously, in a good way, this is, this is what God had wanted. Go to chapter 18, look at verses 3 through 6, just to see the verdict on Hezekiah. It says, he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah. He had broken in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Neshetan. Remember that bronze serpent from, serpent from the Exodus, like almost for like a thousand years, or I guess six, seven hundred years. They'd been worshiping it. As an idol. Verse 5. He trusted in the Lord. The God of Israel. So that after him. There is none like him among all the kings of Judah. Nor among those who were born before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. But kept his commandments. Which the Lord had commanded Moses. There's all that familiar language. But that's on purpose. Showing that this is what God wanted. This is what God asked. Demanded of his covenant people. And for the king to, to lead them in this. And finally, we get a bright spot. After David, really Hezekiah, you you see as as really one of the closest to David's heart for God. Now, there was trouble though. Because remember the Assyrians just wiped out northern Israel. They weren't going to stop. They were coming for Judah. And so they did. They besieged Jerusalem. Assyria was ready to wipe out Judah in that same moment. The king of Assyria's messengers taunted the men of Judah saying, don't let Hezekiah let you trust in Yahweh as if Yahweh can, can deliver you. We've conquered every nation and all of their petty gods. Yahweh's no different. We're going to conquer you and take you down. But Hezekiah and the people stood firm. They were going to trust the Lord. They were not going to surrender. It's a terrible siege and famine though. But God sends the prophet Isaiah, minister during this time, to encourage Hezekiah, telling him to trust the Lord. And Hezekiah prays for deliverance. And it's such a special prayer. You got to read it. Go to chapter 19. I mean, if you just highlighted all the, the key prayers of the Old Testament, you would, you would learn a lot. This is, there are many, and this is one of the, the greatest. 
from Hezekiah to Daniel to Ezekiel. Look at the key prayers, intercessions of the Old Testament. I mean, they're about to be wiped out by this overwhelming force surrounding them. And he's got no hope. There's no option here other than you're all going to die. But he prays. Chapter 19, verse 15. It says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the, the kings of Assyria have devastated the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. That's a prayer. That's a righteous prayer. That's a prayer of faith. This is, it's a monotheistic prayer in a land and time where no one believed in just one God, but he is going back to Israel's calling, shall have no other gods before me. He's affirming in faith that there's only one God in heaven, and he's calling on God to act for his own name. Let all the nations know, verse 19, you alone, Yahweh, our God. This is, that's a righteous prayer for deliverance. And God hears and God answers. And God says he will vindicate his name and Hezekiah's faith. Chapter 19, verse 34, God answers and says, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. That how much God regards that covenant. And then verse 35, this is the shortest battle recorded in scripture. It's one verse. Then it happened that night, or then it happened that night, that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. And so they went home. The, the king and the others retreated, obviously, thereafter. Okay, that's what happens when you pray in faith. I mean, the, the, the prayer and faith of a righteous man can accomplish much. And again, this is showing how. All, this is all Israel ever needed to do. They never needed the best military. They never needed the most advanced weapons or the most money. They didn't need that. They only needed one thing, faith and trust in their God. He would take care of the rest. He would secure their borders. He would prosper them in the land. He'd protect them from famine. He would just be with them. Uh, if only they were of faith. If only you and I were of, of great faith, what else might happen in our lives? What, what kind of witness, what kind of joy, what kind of growth might you have you're stretched into just a true, a dependent faith. Well, chapter 21, Hezekiah continues to reign in righteousness, trusting the Lord. He did have one big failure, I guess we might say, just reading in between the lines. And that was parenting because his son went way off the deep end. Manasseh takes over after Hezekiah and he proves to be, I think, pretty much the worst king of Judah. He goes so far in the opposite direction. You know, kids, I guess, always rebel against their parents and want to go a different path. And he went like way, way different. He rebuilt the high places. He rebuilt altars for Baal. He reinstituted idol worship. Chapter 21, verse 6. He made his sons pass through the fire, child sacrifice. He practiced witchcraft, used divination, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. 
He's known to be a man of bloodshed and violence. He filled Jerusalem with the the blood of, of innocent people. He even turned the temple into a pagan worship center. Verse 9 in chapter 21 says, But they did not listen, and Manasseh seduced them, the people, to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Think about that. Remember the conquest after the Exodus? God tells them, take the promised land and, and drive out these nations, conquer these nations who are living in the land. God was not being capricious when he did that. Why did God want Israel to drive out those nations? That was God's own judgment on those nations, the nations of the Amorites. Why? Because they were extremely wicked, vile, murderous, adulterous, immoral. God was going to use Israel as his instrument of judgment to wipe them out. I mean, it might make you feel better if he used a flood, but he was going to use Israel to be his tool of judgment on these wicked people. He gave them 400 years. If you remember, God told Abraham, uh, the, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Genesis 15. He was going to give them 400 years. But after that time in, his, in the, uh, Egypt, he would bring them into the land and, and use Israel to judge those nations because of their just extreme wickedness. But what does it tell you now that Manasseh is leading Judah into wickedness greater than those nations who were in the land before them? That's a problem. And so what do you think God's going to do now to Judah? Do you think he's going to let them stay in this land that they have now multiplied immorality, violence, idolatry, wickedness? No, he's not going to let them stay in this land. He's going to use someone else to drive them out. That's Assyria. That's Babylon. The prophets, especially Jeremiah, talk about how God himself used these wicked nations. They were wicked, but he used them like a hammer in his hand to, to discipline and judge his own people. That's God's sovereignty over all the nations according to his will. But God's judgment passes. The end of chapter 21, or not the end, the middle, verses 11 through 20, or 11 through 15, we won't read it, but here's where we get the first prophetic word that Judah is going down as well. Judah will face the same fate as Israel. They'll be taken captive. They'll be devastated and led astray. God will bring calamity on Jerusalem. He will wipe them clean from the land because of their wickedness, because of Manasseh. Manasseh becomes really a driving force for the exile of Judah. He led the people in such great wickedness. And so you get into chapters 22 and 23. We're very close to the end. Destruction was coming. At this point, there's really no stopping the train. But there is another one last brief moment of reprieve, and that's Josiah. Josiah becomes king. And what's really special about this episode, and in a sad way, is is what happens. Josiah has regard for Yahweh. He tells the priests, like, go clean out the temple. We need to reinstate Yahweh worship. Go clean out the temple. And as they're just cleaning out the storage rooms of the temple, what do they find? Chapter 22, verse 8 says, Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave it the book to Shaphan who read it. This is the high priest. And he's doing this on behalf of the kings. And what we find here is what they found was the Torah, God's law, which obviously means 
They had lost it. They had so, all the kings before them had so neglected the Torah, God's first, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law given to them. They had so neglected Yahweh worship that they took the law and it was tucked away somewhere in storage in the temple and totally, entirely forgotten. No one even remembered. This is meant to show just how far gone Judah herself was. The previous kings had sunk so far into idolatry, they did not even remember Yahweh gave them a book of the law. That's pretty bad. And even the high priest probably heard about it. He's like, we found it. He would not read it. He didn't know about it. And he said, we've rediscovered this, this book. So what did they do? They read it. Probably a good idea. But as they read it, and if you, if you were with us when we studied Genesis through Deuteronomy, God prophetically warned Israel what would happen if they went the way of the world. If they, if they forsook the covenant and followed the gods of the other nations, he would curse them heavily. That's all in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so they're reading that. They're like, wait, we've been doing all this stuff. Why do you think things are so bad? Like, woe is us. And that's what 22.13 says. Or I'm sorry, 22, uh, yeah, verse 13. King says, go inquire of the Lord for me and the people and all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that was written concerning us. He realizes like, wow, we have... And our nation has gone so far away and broken this covenant. We're going to be under judgment. They do seek the Lord. Josiah uh, and the priests, they know the implications. They do lead the people back to Yahweh. They put away all foreign worship. They kind of re-covenant with the people to worship God alone. They have sweeping reforms. They eradicate Baal worship. They even reinstitute, reinstitute the Passover. Chapter 23, verse 22. It says, surely, uh, you know, 21, that the king commanded all the people saying, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. Uh, again, Israel had so neglected the Torah and not followed through with every word in it. They'd not even celebrated the Passover. That's supposed to be an annual feast for all these hundreds of years. But Josiah does it and leads the people back into God's ways. And God blesses him for it. God tells him, you know, because of the sins of Manasseh and all of the, the bloodshed, judgment's still coming, but it won't come in your days. It'll come in the days of your sons as a, a little mercy to Josiah for his righteousness. And that's what happens. Josiah dies. After Josiah dies, not long after, Judah loses sovereignty. First, the Egyptians come and assert themselves over Judah. And Israel, or Judah, serves Egypt. But after that, chapters 24 and 25, then come the Babylonians. By this time, Assyria has fallen. Who took out Assyria? The Babylonians. They're the next superpower. They take down Egypt as well. And so now you have uh, Judah under the Babylonians. Just to kind of summarize from here on out, we find there's three invasions of the Babylonians and three exiles. It wasn't just one, there were three. 605 BC, the Babylonians overpowered Egypt, became the dominant power. 
they started extracting tribute from Judah. There was a first deportation. Daniel was taken at this time. Then Judah rebelled. So Babylon invaded again. 597 BC, they took captive the king, the nobles, 10,000 of the upper class. This is when Ezekiel was taken. Later, though, Judah rebelled yet again. So the Babylonians invaded and held nothing back. This is 586 BC, and this was total annihilation. Jerusalem was sieged, and there would be no deliverance. The remaining king, Zedekiah, they took him, they slaughtered all of his sons in front of him, and then they gouged out his eyes. So that was the last thing he ever saw. And then they took him captive to Babylon. That's, that's something they did. That's the, the brutality of the Babylonians. And they proceeded to burn down the city. Chapter 5, verse 9. says, He burned down the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. The temple torn down. The walls torn down. The houses torn down. This was an erasing of Jerusalem. And that's it. This is the end of Judah. Judah itself has come to another inglorious end. Israel, the north, Judah, and the south. There's not much left. They're gone. They're exiled. They're devastated. What is left? That's how Second Kings ends. Almost. Technically, though, if you look at the last four verses, at first it seems like an out-of-place ending. What's the actual ending to Second Kings? Again, it seems kind of random. What's this about? You would think it would just end like right there. Okay, that's it. Judah has been exiled. End of story. Game over. You lost. Don't forsake your God. But there's an interesting little ending here. Verse 27. Let's just read the last four verses. This is now in exile. This is in Babylon. It says, Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, doesn't actually mean evil. That's just like a Babylonian transliteration, by the way. That evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he became king, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance... A regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. That's how Second Kings ends. And at first glance, you're like, okay, that does seem like kind of random. Like, why are we learning about this old king who's now, now he gets better food and better clothes, I guess. Like, okay. But the significance, I hope by now for you is clear. Jehoiachin is the, the remaining descendant of David. He was exiled, I think, in the second exile, not the one where Jerusalem was destroyed, but in the second exile, he, he was taken captive, imprisoned this whole time, and treated unwell. But this is now many years later, and he's been freed. He's been released. Of note, he's still alive, but he's even returned now to a place of prominence, still in Babylon, but a place of prominence. And this is meant to show you that though all seemingly has been lost, not quite all has been lost. The temple has been lost. Jerusalem has been lost. The land has been lost. But the line of David has not been lost. And that comes to that the key promise God had given to them, that he will not put out that house. He will, through the house of David, raise up that son of David who will restore them 
and lead them in an everlasting kingdom. It is miraculous that the, the house of David survived for all these years and would continue to survive. You don't get the full history in scripture, but even the next 400 years until the days of Christ, that the house of David survived is miraculous, but, but it did. God had promised this king would, would be their hope, their only hope. Like I said before, Israel should have made him their only hope. Now, now they know it. He really is their only hope. And 2 Kings ends with a, a subtle ray of hope that God's word, let's hope it comes to pass. Let's hope all those good things he said will one day come to pass. But guess what? They should have full assurance that it will. Uh, 2 Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings testifies to just that. Well, in the end, the scorecard of Israel and Judah. Israel had 20 kings, nine ruling dynasties, seven assassinations, one suicide, one was stricken by God, and all 20 of them were judged evil. Not a good scorecard for northern Israel. The the scorecard for Judah in the south, they had 19 kings, one queen, two ruling dynasties, five assassinations, two stricken down by God, three exiled, 11 judged evil, eight judged good. It's still a, a failing grade, I think, but it's, it's slightly better than Israel to the north. Overall, not good. Now, we're essentially out of time, but, you know, if you just, I think I'll just summarize for the sake of time, but if you go back to chapter 17, that, that's the synopsis of 2 Kings. If I told you how chapter 17 is the key, it unlocks the purpose here and the interpretation of this book. We find out, why the exile? The, uh, the author steps in and tells us why the exile. And it applies to Israel and, and, of course, by extension to Judah as well. And in short, you know, verses 7 and 8, after the exile, it says, Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt and under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, Egypt. And they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel and in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. And it goes on and on. For example, 13 and 14 says, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law, which I commanded your fathers in which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck, stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord, their God. And it goes on and on. I guess we won't, for the sake of time, read it all. You can keep going through verse 18, down verses 34 through 41. Just give it to you as homework. Read chapter 17 and study it. But it explains why, and it's it's crystal clear. We've been saying it over and over. Why the exile? Because they forsook the covenant. God made this covenant with them. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. All you got to do is just serve me alone. Have no other gods before me and, and, and regard me as God. That includes as holy. Keep my law. Obey my word. And it will go well with you. Here's this long list of blessings. This is for your good to obey and seek this God and trust him. But if you don't, you'll be cursed and eventually exiled. In fact, again, we don't have time, but you can also earmark Deuteronomy chapter 28 as another special chapter back in the Torah where God himself through Moses prophetically predicted all of this in detail. 
You'll have to read that for time. But God straight up told them that the days will come that if you don't serve me, you and the king you'll set over you, that's before the time of the kings. But he says, you and the king over you will be uh, basically exiled and taken to a foreign land. You'll be made a desolation and others will pass by and sneer at you for your, your desolation. God, God told them this would happen. He warned them hundreds of years in advance this would happen. As it was happening, he let it go on for hundreds of years, but he continually kept warning them through the prophets. I mean, how much is enough? Well, you eventually find out how long God's patience was going to last. Israel found out 722 BC. Judah found out ultimately 586 BC. And that's how long. Not forever. God it does not take especially the sin of idolatry, lightly. And with that, I guess we'll just go into application briefly here, but spend a little bit of time covering it. And it's good to reflect, especially First Second Kings. And I hope you actually take this to heart and really just think about this, not just Bible study, learning what the book of the Bible says, but now what it even means to you and for you as you sit here you know, a couple thousand years later, thinking about it. But it's meant to teach you something. There are three main thrusts in First and Second Kings, and these give us three main applications. They're really simple. But look, first, serve no other gods. Right? Serve no other gods. It's amazing to, to reflect on Samuel and Kings and see how many chances Israel had, how far they went astray and never listening. Think about all their privileges from the miracle of the Exodus, the Red Sea. They had the law of the covenant. The conquest, the land, but they gave it all up. They forsook this God and easily and quickly. Like we were meant to wonder, like how could they do that? It's very easy to rail against Israel for their waywardness until you realize, like we kind of do the same thing, like kind of all the time. Mankind is still living in obstinate rebellion against God. Even us as Christians, though not in the same way, can still wander and go astray. Now, I hope you don't stumble into like literal idolatry and worship Buddha for a day, for example, and don't commit blatant idolatry, but how easily we let other things, things of the world, ultimately self, steal our heart's affection. How infrequently could it be said that we truly love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? And this is made worse when you realize our privileges are much greater than Israel's. Yeah, they had the law, the temple, the covenant. We have the fulfillment of all those things in Christ. We've been brought into the fullness of God's revelation and his new covenant plan. We know the Savior. We've received his Holy Spirit. Like, What excuse do you have? But hopefully you've learned viscerally from 1st, 2nd Kings, do not forsake your God. Don't wander. Don't let anything else steal your heart from him. He does not take that lightly. He's not to be trifled with. He's a good God, but you had better regard him as holy. He's prone to bringing a curse or a discipline on you as well. Even though you're his child, the Lord reproves those whom he loves. Just fill in the blank. What do you live for? Why are you alive? What fulfills you the most in life? If your answer isn't earnestly God, you are committing idolatry. You're worshiping something else. And so repent and worship God alone. Speaking of a second application, 
of Second Kings and really First and Second Kings is just repent while you still have the chance. He's a God of grace and mercy and long suffering, and you, you better thank God for that. But it's not forever. He might allow you to go wayward your entire life, but not forever. There, there's a day of reckoning. There will be a day of wrath. And look, there doesn't have to be. God Himself has given you the way of escape in Christ. If you were to seek him and follow him and believe in him, it will go well with you. Repent, turn from your sins, offer your life to him in holiness. If you don't, beware. If you've been toying with sin or flirting with it, tolerating it in your life, holding on to it, just guarding a little spot in your heart for your sin, you read 1st and 2nd Kings, you should be warned. God will warn you. He's faithful to do that. You read his word, you're warned. You listen to a sermon, you're going to be warned. Even a little Bible study on 2 Kings, you get a warning. How many warnings will you receive before you likewise repent and, and seek the Lord? The words of the prophets now recorded in scripture, they always come to pass as do all the words of the Lord. We don't hear it much, but scripture testifies that a judgment is coming. Even for believers, God's hand of discipline is at the ready. So how long will you tempt him to strike? And how long will you live in the ways of the world, living apart from him? Just be warned. But thirdly, take comfort in God's faithfulness. It's not all law. There's thankfully overwhelming grace. Take comfort in God's faithfulness. Without this ray of hope, we'd all be crushed by the message of First, Second Kings, we'd all be crushed by our sin, because who doesn't fall short? You know, we don't worship Him alone, perfectly, purely, not all the time. We're not always faithful. We we can wander just as much, and this fact would cripple all of us in guilt if it weren't for God's grace and His gracious promises to us. And thankfully, we serve a God of grace. He knows who He's dealing with. He just has dust to deal with and wayward sinners, lost sheep. But in grace, he sent the perfect son of David, not just to rule over us, but to die for us in our place, to pay for all of that, that guilt and shame that we all have in our place. And in turn, by faith, he comes to make us righteous. God, in fear in Christ, though we still fall short, he sees you as righteous. And his smile never departs from you. It's all undeserved favor. And in knowing the depths of your own sin, this free grace in Christ that you've received should lead you to just an overwhelming thankfulness and then a true worship that you are all the more resolved to pursue him, honor him, serve him, fight your sin, and give him the glory. And that will lead you to find peace and rest and, and comfort for your soul in Christ. All of his promises. We're unworthy, but he's just promised to make us his people, to save us in Christ, to wipe away our sins, to call us to himself, to adopt us, to never let us go, to not fail or forsake us, one day to draw us home to a heavenly inheritance. We have so many promises, you can be sure that they won't fail. You cling to him in faith and, and rest in all of these promises. Long for, for Christ's rule, pray for his return. In the meantime, just take comfort and courage in all of his promises and his faithfulness to you.
May we learn a lot from Israel's waywardness that we would not repeat those errors. Well, let's pray. Our time is more than up. We got to finish. Let's pray. Our good God and Father in heaven, we, we thank you for these lessons. Your word is, is true. It's, it's too true for us. It, it pierces us and cuts us to the core because we know as we look on Israel, we're no different, we're no better, just as lost and wayward. But we thank you for your grace and your love, which have come in Christ, that you loved us with this great love. How you would love such a wayward people, we do not know. But that shows your nature and your goodness and your glory, loving us to the extent of, of sending that that son of David, the king. He has already come in Christ, dying for us in our place to redeem us and, and make us a true people fit for your presence. And Christ makes us forgiven and righteous, that which we need to be with you. And so ultimately, we, we know the real end of this story. And I pray we just continue to bow our knee to Christ, to thank him, to, to praise him, live for him, and, and follow him with our lives. And we just give you our lives for all that you've done for us. And purify us in true worship, single-heartedly and wholeheartedly unto you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.